When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. In the strategy video game Civilization VI, where players choose historical leaders to be their avatar, Qin Shi Huang, the first emperor of China, has one goal in mind building wonders like the Great Wall of China. His workers can build wonders faster and more cheaply, and he hates leaders that build more wonders than he does. That largely corresponds to how people in the West think of the first emperor. Powerful, responsible for unifying China, despotic, and focused on building great works like the Great Wall and the Terracotta Warriors. Now, Civilization VI isn't one of the many works detailed in Anthony Barbieri's most recent book, The Many Lives of the First Emperor of China, published by University of Washington Press, but it does explore the many ways the life of Qin Shi Huang has represented in books, historical works, mythology, political narratives, movies, TV shows, and yes, video games. Anthony J. Barbieri Lowe is professor of history at the University of California, Santa Barbara. His book, Artisans in Early Imperial China, won top prizes from the Association for Asian Studies, American Historical Association, College Art Association, and International Convention of Asia Scholars. He is also the author of Ancient Ch- Egypt and Early China, State, Society, and Culture, which was also the subject of an Asian Review of Books interview last year. Today, we welcome Anthony back to the show to talk about the first emperor and how different writers, politicians, and producers portrayed the different aspects of his life. So, Anthony, thank you so much for coming back on the show. I'm excited to talk about uh, your most recent book. You know, I, I yeah, want to start with... Thank you back. Yeah, this is great. Thank you. So I, I want to start by... I know it's I know it's somewhat problematic talking about, like, what do we know from history about the first emperor? Because that, of course, is um, interpreted through different works and you know, ways people have written about it. But I guess to kind of set the historical context for those who might not know, want to know much about the first emperor beyond he unified China, he started the Great Wall, he built the Terracotta Warriors. What do we know about, quote unquote, know about the first emperor and his role in Chinese political history? Yeah, so yeah, thanks for having me. The until the finds of modern archaeology in the last 50 years, we actually knew very, very little about the first emperor of China. Um, there is only one historical account uh, that dates from anywhere near his lifetime, and it's more than a century after his death, and it's filled with difficulties and biases. Um, and also inserted legends, urban legends, and 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 fanciful things, almost like Herodotus uh, in his histories uh, for the Greeks. Um, so that history is not very trustworthy. And so it's really not until the finds of modern archaeology that we knew anything really concrete about his dynasty or his life or his death. Um, and that, of course, started with uh, the find of the Terracotta Warriors and then around the same time, the find of laws from the Qin dynasty. Um, And since then, archaeologists have found 
tens of thousands of documents uh, in places like the site of Li Ye, where they can actually now reconstruct uh, how the empire worked and how taxation worked and labor mobilization and, and the words of different Qin officials, and even some words of the emperor himself and his son, the second emperor. So that's now, we have some real concrete facts about the first emperor. But even as a historical figure, we still know painfully very little about him. Uh, we know when he was born and when he died, but we don't really know the circumstances of either. Um, some people say, you know, that he's the son of a previous Qin king. Some say he's the bastard son of a merchant uh, who his mother slept with. Uh, so there's really very little we know concretely about him compared to emperors of later dynasties. But that exact fact has allowed later historians and movie producers and others to use him as a blank ideological slate, basically, on which to mold him into the image they want to see or they fear seeing. Uh, so he becomes this sort of ideological football that's kicked back and forth, depending on the particular point of view of the author or the interpreter. Right, because the, the first emperor is, I mean, he's he's debated, he's controversial, I think, even, I say quite recently, even though it was probably a couple centuries later, um, but but he's debated, I think, quite, quite recently, um, like after after the Qin dynasty is over, you know, works like um, Sima Chen, the records of the grand historian. Like, what, what are some of these? And I know it's not quite immediate views, but I mean, how, how was Qin Shi Huang's reign kind of seen in the, I guess, in the centuries after the Qin dynasty? I think you're right in by saying almost immediately, because when the Qin uh, falls and is replaced by the Han dynasty, uh, the founder of the Han immediately wants to know, why did I win and why did they lose? Why did the Qin fall? And so he asked his courtiers and authors, you know, explain, what did the Qin do wrong? And so they all gave him explanations, um, many of them revolving around uh, Confucian ideology, ideas that, you know, the ruler should not be selfish, the ruler should uh, help the common people, the ruler shouldn't be extravagant, the ruler shouldn't be brutal, and the ruler should honor Confucians and their literature and their classic texts all of which the first emperor didn't do. Uh, they also wanted the first emperor of the Han to listen to the advice of people like them, uh, because the first emperor was notorious in not listening to advice, especially toward the end of his life, and keeping his own counsel and ruling more autocratically. And so he immediately became an object lesson uh, early in the Han dynasty. We're talking around 200 BC. Now, by the time of Sima Qian, who's the great Han historian who lives between about 145 and 86 BC, he writes the first and the only really surviving biography of the first emperor uh, around 100 BC, around 90 BC that he writes this. But he also has an interpretive sort of axe to grind. Um, he's living under the reign of Emperor Wu of the Han, who is disturbingly similar to the first emperor in many ways. Uh, they're both autocratic rulers who execute people summarily. They uh, are very militarily oriented. Uh, they also are uh, proponents of harsh laws, government interference in the economy. Um, but they also are obsessed with immortality and meeting immortal spirits who can confer 
the elixir of immortality. They're both fooled by charlatans and wizards who promise these things. And so when Sima Qian writes his history of the first emperor, he's not really talking about the first emperor. He's talking about his own emperor. But just as today, you can't really talk about the current ruling person in China. You talk indirectly. You use veiled language. And so Sima Qian uses veiled language to criticize his own emperor by using an an allegory to the first emperor. And he hoped through this to convince his emperor and the people around him to not follow the first emperor's uh, wicked ways. Uh, but Sima Qian was also torn because he couldn't completely repudiate the Qin dynasty because the Han dynasty had adopted every aspect of the Qin dynasty. They had taken over their laws, their ritual system, the whole uh, imperial bureaucracy, the title of emperor. The Han basically continued the Qin, so they couldn't quite repudiate everything about the Qin dynasty. Um, so he had to walk a delicate line to sort of denigrate the first emperor's excesses and his uh, immorality, his vanity, his arrogance, without repudiating the whole system he built, which the Han continued for 400 years. You know, it's interesting to mention, like, writers and historians using the first emperor's experience to kind of comment on their own times or to serve, um, or to serve, I guess, then contemporary political arguments they want to make. And this reminds me, you know, there's a chapter in your book that talks about the uh, the book. Well, was it the book burnings, and mm. was it the the burying the scholars alive, uh, and then how that got kind of brought back in in uh, I believe was it the the early 20th century. Um, I think especially around the time when when the when the you note how when when the Nazis started burning books, you had Chinese scholars come. I think both say, "Oh, it's very bad they're burning books," but also our burning books weren't quite as bad as what the Nazis are doing burning books. Right. So th this is when you start to get the first emperor sort of crosses the ocean and starts to be part of Western discourse as well. Um, you start to have, you know, when the Nazis come to power and when they start persecuting the Jews and burning Jewish literature and, and Western authors like Hemingway and people like that, uh, people say, oh, this is what the first emperor did in China. Um, but then the famous Chinese author Lu Xun, the great, uh, um, you know, the great fiction writer of the early 20th century in China, he wrote an article that I translate in the book saying, no, 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 the, the Nazis were very different. Uh, the Nazis were suppressing everything that wasn't of German ideology. But what the first emperor did, he was just trying to unify philosophical thought, just like he unified weights and measures and the writing system. Um, and so he said it wasn't as bad uh, what the first emperor did. Um, and so to have an argument like this in the 20th century is very different. The previous 2000 years, the first emperor was vilified as the destroyer of culture, uh, the one who tried to destroy the Confuci Confucian classics, who buried alive 460 Confucian scholars. He became the great boogeyman, right? The great villain of the Confucians. But this all changed in the late 19th century, early 20th century, when the Chinese empire crumbled and the whole educational system, the imperial system fell apart. And at that point, China was potentially about to be carved up by imperialist powers and they needed a hero. They needed a hero and a unifier. And so Chinese nationalist authors, people like Zhang Taiyan or Liang Qichao, they started to latch on to the first emperor 
as that kind of figure. We need someone like that, someone who can bring order out of chaos, someone who can beat back the foreigners, the barbarians, and someone who can preserve China. And so the first emperor gets rehabilitated in the early 20th century as a potential nationalist hero about which a sort of myth of the nation can be constructed. And he's put up there even higher than Confucius as a founding father of the Chinese nation. Um, but then this sort of dies down a little bit in the 30s, 40s, early 50s, uh, when the Marxist interpretation takes over. Because in traditional sort of Marxist interpretations, um, the individual isn't as important. It's about historical stages and these are inevitable deterministic stages based on the forces of production. And so there the first emperor just becomes a kind of uh, a hapless vessel, just sort of a representative of a certain social class of the landlord class. And he just sort of rides the tide of history. Um, but it's really in the cultural revolution starting, I'd say in the actually in the anti-rightist movement in the late fifties and then the cultural revolution where Chairman Mao Zedong sort of adopts the first emperor as his doppelganger, as his, his double. Um, and this was sort of a defensive reaction because his critics had, had pilloried Mao uh, after things like the Great Leap Forward and said that you're just being another first emperor, another Qin Shi Huang, uh, you're killing intellectuals, you're burning books. And so he decided to take this as a mantle of honor and reverse it on his critics, double down and say, yes, I am like the first emperor. In fact, I'm even better. I kill more intellectuals. And, and so Chairman Mao took on the personality of the first emperor to justify his unification, but also his use of revolutionary violence, his suppression of intellectuals. Um, and this really comes to the fore during the Cultural Revolution when tons of propaganda is released about the first emperor. Uh, comic books, biographies printed in the millions of copies that turn the first emperor into a valiant crusading hero of China, uh, rather than the horrible villain and destroyer of culture he had been for almost 2000 years. I, I do. I, I did kind of jump ahead a little bit in, in time. Um, but you note there was this shift from, you know, from seeing the first emperor as a kind of as, as this you know, terrible, despotic, anti-intellectual um, leader to someone who is more positive. Um, I wonder if you might go into, get into a little bit the, how, I, I guess, that first view of the First Emperor. Why was it that scholars, writers in the centuries after the First Emperor did portray him as this, as this despotic leader, as this, um, you know, as, as, as a petty leader obsessed with immortality, things like that. What was it, like, how was how was the first emperor portrayed negatively kind of before his reputation started to be revived in the, in the modern era? Yeah. So I call this the sort of the Orthodox Confucian interpretation. And this really starts uh, even before Sima Chen's writings uh, because he's kind of ambivalent. The first emperor had some heroic qualities, but also some uh, heroic flaws, but for the standard Confucian interpretation, uh, the first emperor represented everything that they thought was wrong with imperial governance. Uh, they thought that the first emperor was selfish, uh, that he did not you know, protect the common people or have their interests at heart, uh, that he was vain and arrogant, believing he could live forever, 
Uh, like I mentioned, he, he you know, suppressed criticism, uh, which Confucian scholars thought was very important to rectifying the leader. But he also believed in legalist philosophy. He was a supporter of the ideas of Lord Shang and Han Feidze, uh, which were completely antithetical to the whole Confucian ideology. And so during the Han Dynasty, Confucianism reigns supreme by the middle of the Han, and all other ideologies, including legalism, are suppressed. And so he becomes a sort of villain for the Confucians, which allows them to unify their own sort of fractious sectarian groups. Because within Confucianism, there's all these sorts of different factions. But having this external enemy, this boogeyman, allowed them to sort of unify the Confucian school against this, you know, straw man, this villain they set up as the first emperor. And so he becomes this example that they tell all later generations of emperors, don't be like the first emperor, don't be like the first emperor. But this kind of dialogue, it, it, this discourse diminishes whenever the state is weak. Um, in the Tang dynasty, uh, after the Anlushan rebellion, uh, when the central government sort of breaks down, uh, the first emperor sort of comes back a little bit saying, well, you know, he had a really strong state. He had a good system. Um, and then, of course, as I mentioned, it comes back again at the end of the Chinese empire when the state starts to get weak and fall apart. And then this idea of the first emperor's strong centralization, uh, rule of law, these kind of things, and his fending off of, of foreign enemies becomes uh, more attractive, and the Confucian system is discredited. So I want to maybe move on to talk about some of the specific events or things you talk about in, in your chapters. And you spend one chapter on representations of um, Jinka and his failed assassination of Qin Shi Huang. Mm -hmm. um, what was it about this story that I guess so captured um, writers, historians, and I think much later, uh, you know, directors and, and, and producers. Yeah, this is the most famous story uh, revolving around the first emperor. And it's about this um, so semi-proficient swordsman, but marketplace drunkard named Jing Ke, who wanders from state to state. And eventually he's hired by the prince of the state of Yan, which is up near where Beijing is now, uh, to assassinate the first emperor. This is in 227 BC, uh, before he finishes conquering uh, the East Asian subcontinent. And so this Jing Ke is sent uh, to kill the first emperor, and he brings a gift, two gifts, actually a map, and the severed head of a Qin general who had turned on the Qin. Um, and he gets an audience with the emperor and rolled up within the map is a dagger covered with poison uh, with which he was going to threaten the first emperor uh, to give back territory. And if that failed, he was going to stab him in the heart. And supposedly, according to Sima Chen's version, um, the plot went wrong. Uh, the dagger came out, but Jing Ke didn't stab him in the heart. And the first emperor pulled away, his sleeve ripped off. And then eventually he was able to use his own sword uh, to kill Jing Ke. And so this story is told again and again uh, in poetry and in popular uh, operas uh, throughout Chinese history. It's been portrayed in movies and TV series dozens of times. Um, and, you know, it has this attraction of sort of 
the the killing of of the tyrant how you know the common man who stands up to the most powerful man in the world and nearly kills him i say it's almost like uh you know colonel von stauffenberg who almost kills adolf hitler you know uh with the bomb in the suitcase and it's an almost story it's an almost assassination and it leads to the question well what if you know what if von stauffenberg had killed hitler what if jing ke had killed the first emperor um but what i argue in the book is that it probably never happened. Um, there are multiple versions of this event, but the version from the Qin historical records says that the first emperor found out about the plot and had Jinko killed beforehand. Um, but immediately legends started circulating, uh, historical romances, uh, even during the early Han that showed that Jinko uh, wounded the first emperor, cut off his ear, all these sorts of different things. And this was sort of a way to stab at the, chin with the literary sword, you know, when they couldn't actually attack the chin. Um, but Jing Ke also undergoes a sort of ups and downs. Uh, during that same cultural revolution in the 20th century, uh, where the first emperor becomes this great hero, Jing Ke goes from being a hero to a buffoon. He becomes a tool of these counter-revolutionaries, and he becomes uh, an idiot or a clown, uh, as he's depicted in, in these different accounts. Um, the most recent depiction, uh, would be sort of in the movie hero, uh, Zhang Yimou's film, uh, which he's not called Jing Ke, but there are assassins who are sort of modeled on Jing Ke and they realize that assassinating the first emperor is wrong, that the first emperor's vision of a unified China, uh, demands that regional loyalties and personal loyalties be thrown out and people should surrender their loyalty only to the unified state and the assassins voluntarily give up uh, in this. And, and so that's a very different take on the sort of Jinka legend. You know, I, I want to maybe take a slightly different perspective um, for my next question. Uh, and, and you do mention in your book, it is mostly about representation of the first emperor written, produced in China. But you do mention at times kind of uh, views of the first emperor outside of China, um, even bringing in some of the comments shared by some of your students. Um, hmm. How do you think the first emperor is portrayed outside of China? And I guess, why has that particular image of the first emperor come about? Yeah, I would say the earliest images of the first emperor in the West, uh, after you start to get translations of, of his biography and things, um, is really equating him, you know, with with fascist despotism, with with Hitler or Mussolini. Um, but then after the discovery of the terracotta warriors, you get this sort of fascination with empire, fascination with the, the products of the first emperor. And we also see this, you know, even with the Roman Empire or Genghis Khan, these figures become attractive and romanticized. Um, and it's, you know, it's a little disturbing uh, because of what these people did in terms of atrocities and the suppression of, of liberties, that the first emperor actually starts to take on a little bit of a heroic view uh, in some of these Western accounts. And, you know, I've seen that even in the interpretations of my students. Um, but what I did find in, let's say, the the Western video games and movies about the first emperor, the ones produced in Hollywood or the West, is they're not quite as nationalistic as as the Chinese productions. So, you know, in many of the video games, the first emperor 
is sort of a stand-in for the threat posed by a modern rising China. Uh, because in many of the video games, there's the potential that the first emperor could come back to life. And uh, the first emperor, um, you know, if, if given the elixir of immortality or one of these talismans in these games, the first emperor then comes back to life and claims that now he just won't conquer China. He will conquer the whole world and that he will suppress any idea of freedom uh, and he will, you know, extend this to the whole world. And in one game, he even appears at the UN General Assembly and tells the world that if they don't get their house in order, he will do it for them. Um, so the first emperor becomes this sort of idea of, of this threat, uh, the threat of, of the of a rising China. Um, and so I, I thought that was very interesting. You also see that in the, the mummy, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, the third mummy movie, uh, where Jet Li plays uh, the first emperor. And he also says that he is will conquer the world and suppress you know all freedoms. And in that movie, it's actually the terracotta warriors are on his side. But it's the victims of the first emperor that then rise up with the cry of freedom and that eventually help to destroy him uh, at the end of that movie. Um, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. I mean, but just because you mentioned the video games and I did have to ask a question about video games, um, given that, that it's the other thing I do that takes up far too much of my free time. Um, so I, I, I did not have the chance to try out either Prince of Chin or Indiana Jones and the Emperor's Tomb before this interview. I really should have done. They're available online now. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. You talk about how, like, the... And you get at this a little bit in, in, in your previous answer, too, which is, you know, the, the form of video games, the fact that, like, you need an enemy, you need a final boss, the fact that they require environments to move around in... Um, I guess the form of that medium then changes how these things like the first emperor's tomb are represented. I wonder if I just spend a little bit of time talking about uh, talking about video games specifically as a, as a medium and how they affect the representation of the first emperor. Yeah. So I can tell you an interesting story there. So at one point uh, I was hired by national geographic museum because uh, they wanted to do an exhibition of the terracotta warriors and they were going to hire a video game company to make a sort of video game walkthrough of the first emperor's tomb. And so they wanted my consultation on what did the tomb really look like and, and how could they represent it. Um, but they, when I told them it was dark and cramped and small, uh, they didn't like that at all. Uh, they wanted this grand vision, this huge space. And I told them that's architecturally impossible, physically impossible. Um, but they just, you know, it just wouldn't work. And so eventually National Geographic shut down the whole project and told them, you know, that, that they couldn't produce it. And, you know, you see that in all these video games that, you know, video games require not just an enemy, but like a bright environment somewhere you can you can conduct things and with challenges. And so in all the video games, of course, the terracotta warriors are in the tomb itself, which they never would be. The first emperor didn't want soldiers near him in life. Uh, because he was afraid of assassination. But in most of the games, like Indiana Jones, the terracotta warriors come to life and they become like like a zombie army uh, that you have to destroy uh, on your way to finding the emperor himself. Um, but in other video games, you know, like The Prince of Chin, which is a Chinese-produced video game, it's one of these counterfactual video games where you get to explore sort of what if. And so in that game, you play the son of the first emperor, Fu Su, um, who is in real 
historical texts is commits suicide after his brother forges a will from the father that tells him, you know, to kill himself. And uh, but in the game, uh, when you get the forged will and the and the forged letter uh, from your father, you instead kill the messenger and decide to go on a quest to find out what really happened to your father. And so it's a, a sort of counterfactual where Fusu doesn't die. And then you go all over the empire talking to people, NPCs and others. And then you learn about the very complicated legacy of the first emperor. And so, you know, I really like this game because it sort of explores, you know, the both the positives and the negatives of the first emperor living it through the life of his son, Fusu. Um, so, you know, I think, yeah, video games offer, you know, counterfactuals. They allow you to, you know, engage in building, you know, like in in Civ, the Civ games, there's another one called uh, Emperor Rise of the Middle Kingdom, um, which is a building game, like a city building game. Uh, and in that one, you, know, you can play the first emperor and you can build cities and the Great Wall and other things and learn about, you know, how do you mobilize the resources and not make the population too angry uh, at mobilizing labor and, and still build these things. So I think there's lots of, of, you know, sort of thinking that goes into these games. But as far as historicity goes, historicity goes out the window in the face of playability. Uh, the games have to be playable. They have to be engaging. Uh, there's also a lot of anachronisms in the games in terms of decoration or, or costumes or other things where they often borrow things from later Imperial China, like the Forbidden City, you know, style decoration, uh, rather than really doing the research on what the Chin would have looked like. So I, I, I do want to end by asking about some of the most recent portrayals of the first emperor, um, whether in whether in China or outside of it. Um, as you know, you know, he's he, he's a popular topic for movies, for TV shows, uh, for other kind of cultural productions. Um, are there any kind of more recent portrayals that you'd like to talk about? And maybe what do they tell us about today's China? Yeah, so the first emperor is very popular uh, in in comic books, in manga, in television serials, in movies, uh, and there's been a lot of recent productions. Uh, I mean, he even shows up in the Three Body Problem, the science fiction novel, which I didn't get to talk about. Um, but in the most recent production was this Dacian Fu or Qin Dynasty epic, which was like a a seventy part very expensive, lavish production on Chinese central television that aired in, in 2020. And, you know, in this one, uh, it's really the fourth part of this, uh, of this mini series, uh, which is based on a, a, a long novel, uh, called, uh, Da Qin Di Guo, uh, you know, Great Qin Empire. And this novel basically assumes that, Confucianism was a disaster for China and that the core of Chinese civilization is legalism. And the first emperor is the founding father of China and Confucianism was a mistake and that the Qin is something to be proud of, not ashamed of, and that modern society should model itself on the Qin because that is the real spine, he says, the real core of China. And so in the one that aired in 2020 is the final one where the first emperor is portrayed. Uh, he's almost portrayed as a messiah, 
um, he's portrayed as this this chosen one. And, you know, the one of the previous kings has a vision of this person who will come and and unite the world and bring peace. And and so the first emperor is, is viewed almost in messianic uh, fashion and all of his atrocities are sort of ignored. Um, and in fact, the series ends right when he ascends the throne. So they don't have to show him burning the books and killing the scholars. Uh, but he's really viewed as this chosen one who was, you know, chosen by heaven to bring glory to China. And so it, it's it's a beautiful, um, beautiful production. Uh, takes a lot from Game of Thrones, in fact. Um, and, you know, some amazing set pieces, great acting. Uh, but the nationalist subtext uh, is a little disturbing. So I think with that, that ends our interview with Anthony J. Barberi, author of The Many Lives of the First Emperor. Anthony, I do have a couple final questions for you, which are, uh, where can people find your work and what might the next project be? You talked about this book the last time I asked this question. So so there seems to be this last one seems to be well, a good so chance for you to figure out when I might invite you on the show. I've been working time. on this for more than 17 years. Uh, I started writing this many, many years ago, and it just happened to come to fruition about the same time as the book on Egypt, uh, which I'd been working on for about a decade. Um so there's there's a couple books that I'm working on now, but they may not be ready for prime time for a few years. Uh, one is a massive translation of the Discourses on Salt and Iron, which is one of the most important texts from early China that hasn't been translated fully into English, uh, which is really all about the political economy and the moral economy of, of ancient China. It's a beautiful snapshot into society. Um, the other project, which will be done sooner, is an anthology of travel accounts of um, diplomats, monks, merchants, and others who either traveled from China to the West or from the Western world to China from around 300 BC up until the 20th century. And so I'll be, you know, doing a lot of those translations myself. And and so that one will come out in a couple years. But all my previous books are are available pretty much from University of Washington Press, including this current one. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. The ARB Podcast is on, is on all favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends if you want to support us continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for more information of who's coming up on the show. But before then, thank you so much, Anthony, for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me.